Well, please turn in your Bibles, if you have one, to Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 24. Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 24. As you know, in this section of Luke's gospel, Jesus is journeying to Jerusalem. And here we see that he's been um, invited over to uh, the home of a certain Pharisee for a meal on the Sabbath. And we learn a number of things about the nature of God's kingdom, the nature of the church from this meal that Jesus has with these Pharisees. So Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 24. Please pay careful attention for this is the word of our God. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a, of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. Jesus said, to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a, on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. Then you will begin the sh with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at, that, and at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field. I must go and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. And I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. 
And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this morning. Well, what is the church? What kind of community should the church be? What does the church offer its people? What is the church? These questions are especially relevant in light of the, the massive decline in church attendance in the, the last couple decades, but especially in the last two years. According to the, the Barna Group, there's been roughly a 30 to 50% decline in church attendance in the last two years. Now, optimistically, we may hope that that may come back, but I'm sure all, uh, most of, um, there'd be, there's still going to be a great percentage that don't. And part, at least part of this decline, I believe, is people just don't really know what the church is. If you can find community elsewhere, why go to the church? If you can find what the church claims to be offering in more convenient places, why get up early on a Sunday morning and, and come to church? Well, as you may know, in the context of Luke's gospel, Jesus has been addressing these Two issues, the issues of the kingdom of God and the issues of the issue of the Sabbath. Last week, we considered how the kingdom is like a pinch of leaven or like a seed, a mustard seed growing into a, a, a tree. But then uh, a couple weeks before that, Jesus was addressing the kingdom's holiday, the Sabbath. And so Sabbath and kingdom should be on the forefront of our minds as we approach this narrative in Luke chapter 14. And here in these verses before us, Jesus, as I've already alluded to, is dining with a number of Pharisees on the Sabbath day, enjoying a meal with them as he's journeying on to Jerusalem. And we learn some very important lessons from Jesus at, at this meal. Jesus, in a very compelling way, answers in part, this question of what is the church? And as a consequence, gives us a, a very compelling reason for why every Christian needs to be a part of God's kingdom here on earth. So first we see that the church is a place to experience the redemptive healing of Christ. The church is a, a place to receive the redemptive healing of Christ. You'll notice at the beginning of Luke 14 in verse 1, we learn that Jesus was invited to the home of, of the ruler of, 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 of the Pharisees. And this makes sense since Jesus is journeying to Jerusalem. He needs uh, people to show him hospitality. He's a pilgrim of sorts. And notice in verse 1, the Pharisees are watching him carefully. This is a theme that we've already witnessed on a number of occasions in Luke's gospel, that the Pharisees have this critical eye of hostility upon Jesus, trying to catch him in error. Well, then in verse 2, we witness uh, another man at this, at this meal, and this man has dropsy, this physical condition. And you might wonder, well, why is this man 
which who, who would have been rendered unclean in Judaism, present at this meal with a bunch of Pharisees. It was common in Greco-Roman culture that if a meal was taking place, the invited guests would have a seat at the table, but the front door would be open so that members of the public, people off the street, could come in, but it was expected that they would be sitting against the wall or in an outer room. They didn't have a place at the table. So we don't know for sure, but this man likely came off the street and was sitting along the outer wall or in an outer room. But what is dropsy? Well, according to a number of, of commentators, this, this term was used often in the ancient world, and it referred to bodily swelling due to excess fluid in the body. And usually it came with this insatiable thirst by the individual. And this, this physical notion of, of dropsy also came to take on a metaphorical sense. So there's many authors in the ancient world who who would refer to metaphorical dropsy. Oftentimes, they compared it to one who is greedy. So just as someone who is greedy has much, much wealth, but yet they have this insatiable thirst and lust for more, and it, it's similar to one, one who has physical dropsy. this excess of fluid, but yet this insatiable thirst. Like Diogenes, this, this, this Greek philosopher from the fifth or fourth century BC made this direct comparison. Just as a, a man with dropsy has excess fluid and is constantly thirsty, so a man who is greedy has this thirst for more and more and more to his own demise. So here in this narrative, we see Jesus in the presence of both literal and metaphorical dropsy. This man who's probably sitting out on the outskirts of the, the room is a living illustration of the hearts and the spiritual condition of the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Jesus' day. As we'll go on to see in this narrative, these Pharisees lusted, thirsted for power and prestige and status. In fact, they viewed this meal as a, a means to maintain and promote that status, as they loved the places of honor. And so this, this individual with dropsy is a, a living illustration of their spiritual condition. Well, you see that Jesus asks this question. He says, uh, when he notices that this, this individual is present in their midst, he says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now, Jesus does what he did just a couple passages ago. He, he shows how the Pharisees themselves are inconsistent. They're okay with showing compassion to livestock on the Sabbath, but yet they're not okay with showing compassion to image bearers of God. They're inconsistent. One of the great means and purposes, one of the great purposes of the Sabbath is doing good and showing compassion. And so Jesus then heals this man of his physical condition and, and, and teaches us that the Sabbath, the Sabbath day is a day for us to experience the redemptive healing of Christ. Really the same point Jesus made a couple passages ago when he healed that woman of her condition on the Sabbath. The Sabbath, the Lord's Day, the, the Christian Sabbath is a day for us to experience this redemptive healing of Christ. And if we connect this to Jesus' broader mission, we know that Jesus did not come into this world, take on human flesh just to do some provisional good for those in the first century. 
His great and grand mission was not merely to heal those who were blind, lame, crippled in the first century. His mission was much, much broader, much, much uh, more grand than this. In one sense, you could say his mission was not just to heal those with this literal dropsy, but metaphorical dropsy. That is to say, he came to deal with our spiritual condition, our fallen sinful state. If you think of it, we all as those who are in Adam, the inheritors of our first parent's sin and corrupt condition, we all have that metaphorical dropsy, meaning we all have those vices, there be lust or greed or anger, discontentment, vices that the more we feed, the more they grow. We have these sinful appetites. And so Jesus came to deal with this spiritual condition that we all have, this metaphorical dropsy, as it were. And the Sabbath, the church, especially as we gather together on days like this, the Lord's Day for worship, is a day, is a time for us to experience the redemptive healing of Christ. Or to put it another way, it's a time for Christ to slowly inch us along in our own sanctification. And he doesn't do this through charismatic healing. We don't experience the redemptive healing of Christ in this age through uh, literal charismatic healing. We experience it through the Spirit's ministry through the Word. That's how we experience the redemptive healing of Christ. As we hear the gospel proclaimed, which is the great motivation which motivates us to new obedience. As we hear the law which guides our obedience, instructs and illuminates the path we are to walk on. So the word's important. But I also want to uh, bring to your attention that this, this passage, I believe, is, is emphasizing the importance of the communion table for the church. Now, of course, this meal is not the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper has not been instituted. This is not the Passover. However, think about the images that are present here. Our Lord is having a, a meal, a banquet of sorts, on the Sabbath. Christ, banquet, Sabbath. These are very symbolic ideas, and so we should think in our minds, well, maybe the Lord's Supper is being foreshadowed. But then at the end of this narrative, we see this parable about this great banquet that is to come, the marriage supper of the Lamb, which we know is directly connected to the Supper. The Supper is a foreshadowing of that great banquet to come. So I believe that there is, there is some foreshadowing of, of the Lord's Supper, that great meal that New Covenant saints enjoy on the Christian Sabbath. And thus the Supper is an important way in which we experience the redemptive healing of Christ. Not just through the Word, but it's through the Supper, through the communion table. And in this Supper, Christ doesn't come down to us, but rather we are raised up to him. You'll notice in our forms when we celebrate the supper, we, have, uh, we say we lift our hearts up to the Lord, meaning the spirit unites us to the risen Christ, the human nature of Christ. That's why Ephesians 2, Paul says that we are in some sense raised right now with Christ in the heavenly places. And in this meal, Christ is feeding and nourishing our souls. Just as Christ feeds and nourishes our souls through the word, he feeds and nourishes our souls in a, in a special way at the communion table. 
So bringing it back to that, that op some of those opening questions I, I gave at the beginning, one of the, one of the compelling reasons we have to give people for why the church is important, the embodied local church, is because you can't get the supper anywhere else. Sure, you can have bread and wine at home with your family, but you're just eating bread and wine. Nothing more is going on in, in, in that moment. It's only as the people of God gather on the Lord's Day and the simple bread and wine is consecrated that we have real participation and communion with this risen Christ and thus are nourished and fed and experience this redemptive healing of our Lord. As Protestants, we rightly prioritize the word as being central, but sometimes we can neglect the importance of the table, importance of the supper. We talk about the means, plural, the means of grace. We have both word and sacrament. And the supper is one of the, the blessings, the avenues of grace the Lord has given us in this age. And that's the church. The church is a place where we experience the redemptive healing of our Lord. Well, verses 1 through 6 really focus on what the church offers her people on the Sabbath as we gather together. But the rest of this narrative is getting at what type of community should the church be? So what type of community should the church be? And we see that the church is a countercultural community. That's really the main point that Jesus is, is giving us in, in the rest of this narrative. The church is a countercultural community. Now, the Greco-Roman world, in the world in which uh, Judaism and Jesus was, was operating within, was a honor-shame culture. Uh, one anthropologist describes the difference between a shame culture and a guilt culture in this way. A, a guilt culture, one determines what's right or wrong based on their own conscience. While in a shame culture, right and wrong is really determined by the judgment of the community. So you can think of honor or shame as really the attribution or loss of esteem by one's community, whether it be their family, their social class, etc. So self-esteem would be an oxymoron in, 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 that, in, that, in that setting and culture. You don't esteem yourself, the community esteems you, grants you honor or shame. And so within this honor-shame culture, there was a deep social hierarchy that existed. And meals were oftentimes a public display of one's social status, one's place in this great hierarchy. And meals, uh, if you received an invitation to a meal, sometimes the host would seat you, other times you would pick your place at the table and each seat came with different degrees of honor. And the whole game and goal of picking your seat would be to pick a seat that was appropriate to your honor, your status, but hopefully you could pick a seat that was slightly above your status and you wouldn't be moved, and so then that meal would be a big, big plus to your place in this hierarchy. However, the risk you ran is you didn't want to get moved, because if you got moved, then it would be like falling off a cliff. Public shaming. And so invitations were carefully considered both by the host and by the recipient. You didn't want to receive, accept invitation to a meal with people who are way below you. As a host, you didn't want to invite people who are way below you. Another staple in this culture was the idea of reciprocity. So in the, the Greco-Roman culture, there was very few gifts that were given with no strings attached. 
You gave a gift. The reception of that gift meant that you were obligated to give a gift in return. In the context of meals and hospitality, if you accepted an invitation to a meal, that obligated you then to extend an invitation to the host as well. Consequently, in that culture, lesson 101, as it were, is you, you did not invite the poor to a meal because, on the one hand, it would have been a huge dent in your social status. Number two, the poor cannot reciprocate, uh, uh, reciprocate you, and so they didn't serve your self-interest at all. And number three, you would, in some sense, be shaming that poor person because they would have to publicly decline because they couldn't reciprocate. And so you did not invite those who were way below you in, in, in this, this great hierarchy. And so you'll see in verse 7, Jesus says this. He says, now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. Again, notice the contrast from verse 1 to verse 7. Verse 1, it's the Pharisees who have this critical eye of hostility upon Jesus. Now, in verse 7, we see that Jesus is noticing and observing the Pharisees. What he's observing is that they are really treating this meal on the Sabbath as just a, an, another Greco-Roman meal, as another means to maintain and promote their social status. They, as they walk into that room, are looking for that place of honor, looking to advance their own status in society. I don't think we necessarily have to say that Jesus is indicting this practice wholesale. But what he is saying is when it comes to the kingdom of God, when it comes to the church, when it comes to the Sabbath day, these practices should not infiltrate into the church. This is a different kind of community. He's not necessarily indicting how, if you want to have a, a meal on Wednesday night with, with one's neighbors, but when it comes to the church, the kingdom, the Sabbath, this is a different kind of community governed by a different principle. And so in verses 12 through 13, he continues on and he explains, uh, explains this parable. He says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, now think, uh, symbolic in some sense of, of the supper, but of, of the kingdom of God, the church. He says, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. Again, reciprocity. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. This would have been shocking. Completely going against the grain of a, a given cultural practice. What Jesus is telling us is that table fellowship in the church does not adhere to the same standards as table fellowship in, in this world. Now, of course, we don't live in, in this culture, and we're probably not tempted to do the, the things that the Pharisees were tempted to do. However, every culture has social hierarchies. Every culture is tribal and has divisions. And the temptation in every culture is to bring that tribalism of the world into the church. Some sense we saw that 
in James 2 from our reading the law this morning. Even today, when you look out, especially among Protestant churches, in practice, you see many churches that are first and foremost united by a common cultural identity. It could be generationally speaking. It could be uh, one social, a socioeconomic uh, status or educational level or political or social causes that unite them. And really, secondarily, it's their common confession in Christ. But Jesus is, is saying the opposite should be true. We come together as those of the kingdom based on our common confession in Christ and only secondarily our cultural identities. And this is hard. It's hard. Uh, you know, we live in, a, in this world Monday through Saturday and, and, and it's not necessarily wrong to unite with others who are in common, com, where we have commonalities, but the church is a different kind of community. And the fundamental basis of our unity is that union with Christ, our common confession in, in our Lord in our Lord Jesus. And so what is the church? Well, the church, in the, in the, in the, in the words of, of Paul in Galatians 3.24, is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. That's what unites us as members of the kingdom. In fact, the table, the communion table, is an expression of that unity. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, we are in one sense laying down our many identities that we hold in our lives and we are coming together based on our fundamental identity as those who are united in Christ and members of his body. Well, Jesus also states uh, in this passage that one should uh, desire, seek out the low seat. Uh, he sets the paradigm here for, for his church, this paradigm of humility before honor, suffering before glory, a paradigm that he himself lived out perfectly. And so in verses 10 through 11, he says, again, a very countercultural claim. He says, but when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is saying here, in his kingdom, humility is honorable. And he's not saying the veneer of humility. No one would contest that humility is worthy of emulation and, and honorable, but there's a sort of veneer of humility, a, a self-righteous uh, humility that I think is, is very common. True humility is difficult. Think of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. How his members of his kingdom, when they're slapped on the cheek, literally or metaphorically, should turn the other cheek. In those moments, you want to defend your honor. How dare I be slapped on the cheek? But humility says, no, here's my other cheek. That's difficult to do. Very difficult to do. But here Jesus says, no, it's honorable to take the low seat, to turn the other cheek. And this reference, again, to the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, not only teaches us that um, what we talked about before, but also, also teaches us that the church is a place for the weak. 
these are, in terms of this great social hierarchy of the first century, this would be the, the, the bottom rung. The church is a place for the weak. It's not for those who have everything put together. The church is a place uh, for weak, sinful creatures to come and to have their guilt explained to them, to be refreshed, encouraged. One of the great benefits of, of, of community in general is that it acts as a, a sort of shock absorber when we go through the trials and tribulations of this life. Well, if that's true of just ordinary community, how much more so should that be true of the redemptive community, an everlasting community, as those who are united in our Lord Jesus Christ? And so the church is a countercultural community in that it surpasses the tribalism of this present age, and it is a place for the weak. So, beloved in the Lord, brothers and sisters, what is the church? Well, Jesus here gives us a number of important lessons. He says the church is a place where we experience the redemptive healing of Christ. And the church is truly a community that is to be countercultural. And it's a love for one another. I believe this is what motivated Jesus' words in John 13 when he said, By this, by this countercultural love, all people will know that you are my disciples. Let us pray.